Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Christopher Madigan for the game Cuphead, which came out at the end of September. The game is stylized like a cartoon from the 1930s, so if you can picture that kind of animation style, Chris's score is influenced by and based on music from that same era, like ragtime music, the big band scene, Dixieland, straight-up jazz. Uh, A couple of notes before Chris gets started. You'll hear him talk about a a man named Rob McConnell and a band called The Boss Brass. That band is a very famous Canadian big band, and many of the players from that group recorded the music for Cuphead. I threw a track in there from the Boss Brass called Greenhouse, and you'll see that on the playlist. As soon as I saw it, I was like, I can't believe no one has made a game like this before because it's perfect. It's it looks so good. I think when they when they sort of hit on that idea, they were also like, we can't believe no one has made a game like this. And then they, then they started doing it and realized, oh, we, now we see why no one has made a game like this. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious if other people have had this idea in the past and then thought it, thought about it in a really logistical sense and said, no, that's going to be way too much work. Chad and Jared was sort of the, maybe the first people to have actually like seen this idea through to completion. But So talk to us a little bit about uh, how how you got brought into the project then to write a jazz score. I mean, was that like specifically what happened or did you write a demo? How did that work? Well, I've known Chad and Jared for, since grade five, basically. And so we've been friends for over 25 years now. And because we grew up in the same, they grew up a couple blocks from me. So when they started working on this game, whatever it was, five or six years ago, um, they brought me on, I think at the end of summer 2013, so it's over four years now. And uh, they didn't really, I don't think they really knew any other professional musicians or really didn't know who to ask to do it. And, you know, I initially was very um, hesitant to say yes to this project for a number of reasons, one of them being that I've never, this was way out of my wheelhouse. They wanted me to write big band music. I was like, I love jazz. I've played jazz for a long time. But that's not writing. It's a different different thing. So, yeah. But eventually, you know, I, they sort of uh, kept on me, and I ended up doing it. But uh, that was the style. Was Chad? Chad knew from the very beginning. He had a very strong idea of what um, stylistically the game should sound like, and he wanted it to be '30s big band. And he had uh, he had done a lot of. He's very music savvy too, and he's he had done a lot of. Um, his own research sort of beforehand so that he he could sort of tell me what directions he wanted things to go in. So he had he sent me tunes and videos and he's like, this is how I want the game to sound. So that's sort of the genesis of where that started. Okay, okay. Uh, so talk to me about some of those videos he sent you. I would imagine one of them was Sing, Sing, Sing. Uh, I'm pretty sure one of them was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely yeah. some... There's there is a Cab Calloway tune from I forget which short film it's from, but he's he's on a train and he gets a telegram and like they need they need a tune ready for like when the train gets into the station. So then he wakes up, the band's all sleeping, and he wakes them up and says, "Guys, guys, we gotta we gotta make this tune." And then they jam on the train. Yeah. 
it's kind of it's just like this fun sort of fast uh, fast thing they do. So I think he sent me that one, and we were sort of both influenced, I think, by a lot of the same stuff: uh, Duke Ellington, Callaway, uh, Benny Goodman with Lionel Hampton and Gene Krupa were huge ones, and they were also very open about sort of stretching, not not just sticking, you know. If I had other ideas, like I wanted to put a tap dancer on there, so they were like, that's cool. I wanted some barbershop quartet. That was fine. We ended up doing some ragtime stuff, which is not so era-appropriate, but it, it fits some levels of the games. They were open to that as long as it still fit the overall vibe of the game. barbershop stuff is fantastic and uh, tell me a little bit about about that about writing that because I imagine you probably hadn't written a lot of barbershop music before either and that's a whole thing isn't it it's like this whole style it's, it's like a secret society uh, <laughs> yes it is yeah no so um, the group that sang on that on the game they're called Shoptimus Prime two of them are based in Toronto or based in Ontario and then two of the guys I think live in Rochester so they go back and forth. It's, they're pretty close, so they go back and forth pretty regularly. And he had a reach, reached out to them originally. If you see some of the old, earlier gameplay demos from Cuphead, the, the introduction screen has the barbershop quartet singing, and, and that's the group, that's them singing on that one, but I didn't write that particular tune. That was just, I think they just, Chad had found them, and he said, I want a barbershop quartet uh, cool. to sing the, in, the intro stuff. So they, I think they threw that... Uh, or they sort of wrote that tune themselves. And so we always sort of knew we wanted to bring them back and make it, you know, a bit more of a finalized kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I had, I had that, um, the tune, which is now the, the title screen barbershop tune, is I had sort of already written a vocal tune in a way, and then I had to go back and kind of reverse engineer it to be a barbershop kind of tune. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was talking to Michael, who's the the uh, tenor, or sorry, he's the lead in the uh, in Shoptimus Prime, and he was able to sort of get me, a, a, we, he was hooked me, up, hooked me up with a book of, uh, there's the Barbershop Society of America's, like, manual, basically, for writing and arranging barbershop, and it's mass, like, two inches thick, huge, and it's like the, it's kind of like maybe the only book, really, for uh, writing and arranging barbershop, so I, <laughs> I got my hands on that book, and I studied it for a long time, and I was able to sort of I liked the introduction music, but it wasn't really traditional barbershop, so I was able to sort of give it a bit of a barbershop feel, but I wanted to try my hand at writing something that was a bit more legitimately authentic. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's where the tune, there's a tune halfway through the game uh, that they also sing on. It was also like, if we're bringing them in, we might as well have them do a couple of tunes if we can. Yeah. It's nice to rest your eyes and maybe go outside. Grab a book and get some air. So That's where that came from. That was my attempt to write something that's a lot more stylistically sort of accurate barbershop. So, and, uh, and it's totally goofy, you know, lyrically. It's like kind of silly, but 
what are some of the things that you do compositionally to make it sound like barbershop music outside of, you know, the lyrics and the phrasing? Like, are there harmonic things? Are there, I mean, what what is it that makes that different? Yeah, there's a lot of um, sort of rules that are maybe counterintuitive to or fairly different than standard four-part harmony writing. Sure. And it's it's interesting, like um, in Barbershop Quartet, the lead voice is, is the second voice from the top. It's not the top voice, which in typically in four-part harmony, you know, you have your soprano voice would be the the melody line. And in, in Barbershop, it's the second voice below that, which is technically the lead voice, which is the lead voice, which is the melody. Sure, sure. So that's, that's kind of weird, and then everything's sort of jumping around. You have to keep things... You have to deal with like the proper keeping it within the range, and a lot of it is um, secondary dominance in barbershop seventh. There's like a certain percentage of dominant chords that you sort of need to be a legit barbershop tune, and there's a bunch of chords that standard chords for anything else that you don't use in hmm. barbershop. I don't, I don't think you use any minor sixths or uh, really actually not many minor chords at all. Hmm. And so there's there's a lot of things to learn which you would probably never use in any other context because they're barbershop specific. And I, I mean, I only made it maybe like halfway through that book tops because there's a lot wow. of information in there. Yeah. But it's like, you know, I kind of, it was for my own, for my own benefit to a sense, I wanted to, uh, you know, stretch my own learning and, and see, uh, see what I could do with that. So I thought it would be interesting to try and really delve into it and, and write a legitimate barbershop kind of tune. So that's kind of where that's, came from. I probably spent way too long doing it, but it was it was a it was a good experience. Well Cuphead and his Pelmug man, they like to roll the dice. By chance they came on Devil's Game and gosh they paid the price. I gotta ask you too about the ragtime music because the stride stride piano, which is, you know, ragtime basically, is mm-hmm. so hard to play. And oh, yeah. I, I, I would love to know about writing that and also who who was playing it. Yeah, so the writing was, uh, I was just checking out a lot of uh, Scott Joplin stuff. And some of the stuff is not particularly Joplin. Uh, his, his writing is a lot more refined than a lot of what I was writing. But uh, I was just checking out a lot of the standard stuff from that era. And, and we sort of knew we were going to have to get really solid players on those on those parts. And so my friend Jonathan Dick, who is a phenomenal uh, piano player and songwriter and, and vocalist, from, I know him from Saskatchewan as well. He did most of the ragtime piano stuff, the platforming levels and then the world map stuff. also had um, Christina Fay. She did one of the ragtime platforming things, also very fast, and she did the piano, the barbershop piano that's the second track on there, which is just the piano version of the barbershop, she played that. also fantastic. And then uh, Elizabeth Acker, who played piano in the ragtime ensemble stuff, she played, I think, I think she played the solo 
elder kettle piano as well. Most of the solo stuff was uh, Jonathan on that. The solo piano stuff and the ragtime ensemble stuff, I kind of knew who I wanted to hire, and uh, I just kind of wanted to work with my friends and people that I people that I know really well. Mm-hmm. The big band stuff was a little different. We needed we sort of knew from the beginning that we were going to need to find a group of musicians who has played together for that has experience playing together. I think it's like. You know, it's the same with it's the same with an orchestra or anything like that. Like you can you can get freelancers and you can put together a, a pickup group mm-hmm. and they can play the stuff fine, but it's not going to have that correct synergy, maybe. Mm-hmm. And we knew specifically for the big band stuff, we needed musicians who were maybe more familiar with each other. And so, from really early on in the process, I kind of knew that I wanted to hire. So there's a group. Arguably the, the most important Canadian big band in history, I would say, is a group called the Boss Brass. Well, yeah, they were around from early 70s, I think, until I want to say like 99, I think was maybe when they... Uh, disbanded, and then uh, Rob McConnell, who's the leader, passed away in, I, want, I think, around 2007. I should actually pull up my dates to make sure I'm not getting these too wrong. But but that was kind of, a lot of those guys are based in Toronto. So we, you know, from early on, I was like, we should probably try and get, essentially, the Boss Brass <laughs> to play this stuff, because they're going to have, you know, they're going to be great players, obviously, but they're also going to have that familiarity with each other which I think will, it'll come through in the final performance, but it'll also just make everything easier because, you know, we'll spend less time maybe rehearsing, less time in the studio. And I think it worked out really well. We were fortunate that most of the, most of the players we were able to get were Boss Brass guys. They sound absolutely amazing, and uh, I, that kind of leads me to how how things were recorded then, because it it sounds great, and it sounds uh, like it it just sounds like there must have been something unique about the way it was recorded. Was there? Yeah, everyone was live off the floor in the same room. There was some some isolation booths and stuff, but mm-hmm. we were at um, Canterbury Music Studio in Toronto. And the guy who runs that, Jeremy Darby, is awesome. <laughs> he's worked he's worked with everybody. He's spent a long time working with Lou Reed. Did some Bowie tours, some Prince tours. Like he's been around, and he does. You know, he's done. He's done jazz. He's done kind of does everything. His mm-hmm. studio is incredible, and he has a, a phenomenal collection of old mics. So we used a lot of uh, vintage. I mean, to. Right off the floor, we used a lot of vintage mics and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And everyone was, we experimented with, everyone was close mic, but there was also sort of room mics. 
And I think in the final in the final mixes, we ended up using a bit more of a room based sound for that. Okay. Um, but we had a certain amount, you know, I had some reference recordings that I brought in and said, like, you know, I like the sound of this. Obviously, it sounds, it can't sound old and, like, you know, degraded and whatnot. It still needs to sound yeah. clean. Yeah. And uh, so we spent a long time, there was a long time between when the final big band session was done and when the game came out. And so we had a long, I was still recording some other small things and, like, the ragtime percussion and a bit of other piano and stuff. We had a long time to spend specifically on the big band mixes to really sort of refine them and get them how we wanted. That's kind of how that all came about. So, I mean, you're a percussionist. Yeah. So, did you play anything? I played um, the, all of the drums on the ragtime stuff. It was me. Awesome. And I played uh, all of the percussion, except I didn't do any of the vibraphone solos, because that's not my... I did the written-out vibe stuff, but not the solos. That's okay. a local percussionist and vibraphone player, Mark Duggan. I didn't do any of the, the uh, Brazilian percussion. That's... Uh, Alan Hetherington also is a good friend of mine, and uh, I've been studying with him for about three years now. He's a master of Brazilian percussion. Nice. Um, so we brought him in on that, and then I didn't do any of the drums on the big band either because that's that was a little too intense. I just wanted to sit in the booth and and listen. So so we were lucky to get Ted Warren um, doing the the big band drums on nice. on the session. He's he's an absolute monster too. But I did a lot of the, I did like the ragtime percussion and the xylophone and stuff just because it was kind of I knew what I wanted and it was just easier to come in by myself and just sort of lay it down and it was you know saved a bit of money maybe but also like I didn't have to I, a lot of those the thing about mallet parts is they're you can't, it's they're tough to sit down and read them you sort of have to spend time working with them mm-hmm. and it was just it was easier for me to do that myself than to give it to somebody and say like you know. Sorry for these parts. They're really twisty and, and not idiomatic. Uh, you know, do, do you mind learning them? I felt I would have felt bad if I had to do that. So. so, so did you play the xylophone then in Legendary Ghost? I did, yeah. I love that track with the tuba. That one was fun. Is that banjo in the background? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Oh my god, okay, that's amazing. Wow, yeah, you got so much fun stuff in there. Yeah, the, the, um, a lot of the ragtime arrangements are based on the the Gunther Schiller New England Conservatory, like his his arrangements, like I kind of was studying those and his nice. you know, his instrumentation and the way that he took the way that he took the Joplin tunes and then how he distributed them throughout mm-hmm. the ensemble I think is really well done. Mm-hmm. 
I spent a lot of times looking at those and sort of seeing like what he did. Was there washboard at some point too? Did I hear washboard by chance? There's washboard on a couple tracks, yeah. <laughs> that was. Uh, uh, I, I love I, it. I had seen some. Well, that's another. Like that's maybe. I don't know. I don't really know how they must have been doing that back in the back in the like 30s or, or the early the turn of the century. Oh, they must but have been. Yeah. The, there's definitely some. Uh, there's a, um, a ragtime piano player in the states named Tom Breyer. And he is unbelievable. His videos are incredible. He was in like a really bad car accident, I think, about a year ago. So he's, um, I don't think, I don't, I haven't actually read how he's doing, but I don't, he hasn't been playing for a while, which is terrible. Mm. But there's some incredible videos with him and a lady by the name of uh, Washboard Kitty Wilson. So I was watching a lot of her videos. I think she also just just passed away recently, unfortunately. But um, oh, geez. and she's and she's got so they do a lot of duet stuff, and it's great. And she's got a wash the washboard, and it's got all these toys on it, woodblock, belltree, and stuff. So I was kind of I was kind of inspired by by sort of those performances to uh, add the and and there was a few a few ragtime piano pieces too where I was like I just wanted them to be piano. And I thought that they they worked best as piano, and Chad was like, "No, no, they need percussion. Trust me, because it's it's going to be part of the levels in the game." And so I, I put some percussion on them, and I realized that he was absolutely right. They were much better with the, the percussion on. So. I'm curious about Inkwell Isle and the iterations mm-hmm. of that track because, you know, you've got two of them that are ragtime and then the third is just pretty much straight up jazz. And then yeah, then that last one kind of gave me like this Gershwin-y, Porgy and Bess preludes vibe. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I was curious about, about those four, if you can talk about them without spoiling them, like how they feature in the game and such. Well, yeah, I think when Chad decided that there was going to be an overworld map, that was kind of when I was like, okay, we should do something that's maybe more of a ragtime vein just to sort of like change up the style a bit. Sure. So Inkwell Isle 1 was first, also musically, like that was, and originally it was only, this is, you know, years ago now, it was only going to be the one world map. (laughs) And so then there's kind of that, that ragtime tune, I was super into Joplin. It's fairly, that one's fairly derivative of Joplin in a lot of ways. going to be some more worlds then. So then I went through my my trusty um, complete piano works of Scott Joplin by the, the New York Public Library Press. It's a great book. It's got every every Joplin thing in it. And I was kind of looking at what other what other kind of styles that he did. And he's got three or four tunes in there, which are the 6-8 March style, <laughs> as opposed to the 2-4 the kind of thing. And also he's got a handful of, um, of waltzes. And so... 
The next two tunes I wrote were Inkwell Isle 2, which is the 6-8 ragtime march. Originally, what became Elder Cattle's theme, which is the waltz, was also going to be uh, a world map tune. So that's kind of those were kind of the three that came first. And those all have the like they have the what I ended up doing when I realized that we were going to need more music for for world maps and then some secondary characters and tutorial and other things was it just it made sense for me to line, like it's super simple it's just that four note motif that starts the inkwell aisle but it was it was easy to take those four notes and use them as a jumping off point in a lot of tunes so they kind of tie a lot of things together so it's like those that's the same motif which is in inkwell all four of the inkwell islands it's the same motif that's in the tutorial, Elder Kettle, a um, few other places throughout the game. So that's kind of ties it all together because it's the same, just the same four note motif. But at that point, Chad was like, now we're going to have maybe the third world's going to be a bit more of this like jazzy city kind of thing so that was that was kind of at that point i was like well let's not make it you know let's not be so strict with the ragtime let's maybe loosen it up a bit so make kind of a you know just a, it's more of a straight up jazz thing I kind of wanted it to have a bit more of a mysterious film noir vibe, which is maybe slightly anachronistic. That's maybe more like 40s, but I started listening to a lot of film noir music. vibe to be right and I wanted things to be sort of atmospherically correct but I wasn't too concerned about if something was like an anachronistic in any sense mm-hmm. I wasn't like too worried about if it, if it was way off base that's different but if something was from the 40s or the 20s yeah I was, it was a bit more like yeah that's fine whatever oh yeah so so like if you take Inkwell 1 the first half of that is pretty standard straight ragtime tune
And then the trio section, it goes into that swing field, and it goes into the New Orleans polyphony thing, which would never happen. In you know, this has probably never been a tune where those two things have been combined, right? But to <laughs> yeah. me, to me, it made to me it made sense. Like I know that's not maybe legit, but I was like, I think this just makes sense here. It sounds good. It's, mm-hmm. it, organically, it wants to go to this swing kind of feel. So so I wasn't too concerned about doing anything like that. Yeah, like that. That to me is kind of what. It's correct, but it's not. But that's what makes that's what makes it interesting, maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, you can get real ridiculous with stuff like that, and you, you know, you got to serve the project and and your own creative, you know, ways. It's you can drive yourself nuts trying to be too specific about it. You know? Absolutely, yeah. talked about this before too but I wanted to I realized partway into the project that I really wanted to approach it like I didn't want to write 30s music for an 80s video game that we made in in 2017 or whatever I wanted I wanted it to be like my question to myself was what if in a different universe in the 1930s the jazz age was happening and video games had already been invented what would that score sound like and and like that was i thought that was a more interesting way to approach it than to try and be super analytical about no it definitely didn't do this in the 30s so we can't do it sure it was trying to write it's like trying to write video game music from the point of view of we're living in the 30s the music operate in the game in that is that does it loop did you write things in layers and put them into a, a you know middleware program that mm-hmm. stems everything out how did that work some of the early tunes i would i would add like a section at the end that i was like okay well, we're gonna have to, you know we'll just keep looping this one section at the end and it's just mm-hmm. like an open solo kind of thing and then i realized after that like i didn't want to write like that i'm just going to write full regular length, regular form, big band tunes, and we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll deal with it later in the process. Mm-hmm. And Because um, everything was recorded with clicks, so, I mean, it's all going to be more or less in the same time zone, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I, what I ended up doing was once we had the final mastered products, I went into where I thought it should repeat if it needs to, and I went, I zoomed in, and I put them in Cubase, zoomed in, and figured out the exact, you know, hundredth of a second where... This can loop back to this other section in the tune <laughs> wow. without without making you know keeping it in time without making a click sound, and and that you know that will be that that's how it'll work. And it's funny now playing the game. I realize that that's such a minor concern because like the tunes are way longer than they need to be. The, you know the learning curve is like you're going to keep dying at the beginning, and then once you figure it out, you're going to beat it before you ever get to the end of the tune anyways. Sure. So so there is a there is a mechanism in place to to do the looping, but I don't think it's um, nearly as much of a concern as we were worried about. Sure. Another interesting thing that we did do, because we were thinking about still keeping things interesting without getting too, like, you know, you're going to, especially in a game like this, you're going to have to keep listening to the same tune over and over again to a certain extent. Yep. So 
we wanted to keep things as interesting as possible within that framework. So almost none of the solos, the you know individual solos in any of the big band tracks were done off the floor. What we did was we just had the guys, the rhythm section playing and the backgrounds playing, but there was no solos going on. And then what we did afterwards was we brought in, I think, six or so of the players, and they blew solos over... You know, I sort of had a list of who I wanted on each tune, mm-hmm. but um, basically what we had to do is come in for... Uh, a session and blow solos over a bunch of different tunes and then we would have a bunch of options to use so what you're like some of the tunes ended up in the game they have six different mixes and it was it took i know jeremy was like pulling his hair out with uh the amount of mixing he had to do but so basically what it means is you you know you play this one boss you might hear a vibraphone solo and then a trombone solo and then you die so then when you play it again it's going to play the same track, but it's going to play a different version of that track. So then you'll hear a piano solo and a trumpet solo, maybe, in in what would be the same same spots. So it's a pretty mi- like it's ended up being kind of a minor detail because I don't think too many people notice it. Yeah. But it was something that I wanted to do to, to maybe keep things a bit more uh, interesting in that. Yeah, no, that's brilliant, and it seems like people would notice it if you hadn't done that. You know, you would notice that you'd get the listener fatigue, you know, even with an amazing soundtrack or whatever it is, you kind of... Mm-hmm. But but I think, you know, changing it up, that that's really a really cool way to do that. The other thing, too, though, is you wrote a ton of music. The soundtrack is almost three hours long. That's not unheard of, but that's pretty crazy. That's a lot of music, yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's, it's sort of just it added up. I mean, again, now that I realize it, it probably could have been, a lot of those tunes maybe could have been shorter. I don't think I would have necessarily done that, though. Like, I think that it was nice to create something that is complete in and of itself. Yeah. So you can sit you can sit down and it doesn't sound like this tune should be twice as long. Right. Like you can sit down and it's a it's a regular, you know, quote unquote regular big band tune from front to back. It has an intro, it has a couple solos, it actually has an ending, which is not particularly common uh in a lot of video game music. Like you sit down and listen to a video game soundtrack and it's maybe this beautiful tune and then it just repeats again mm-hmm. and then it fades out. And it's like, well that it doesn't seem like it's quite finished. <laughs> and I mean, I know, I know that in the context of most games, like there's no point in doing that because you're never going to hear it. But this to me seemed like it was almost we were maybe creating more of a, an actual album or something. And yeah. so it was like, well, we should probably like do as much justice to the tunes as we can, and you know, make them complete. Yeah, yeah. No, so that's... and it's you know, it, it added, it ended up, you know, I added it up once it was all done, and I was like, wow, this is a lot of. <laughs> a lot of music. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about, you know, where you perform and kind of what you do other than Cuphead. I'm a, a freelance percussionist and 
occasional drum set player in Toronto. My main gig is with the National Ballet of Canada Orchestra, which is an awesome, awesome gig. It's a great orchestra, great group of people, fun music. And but that's not that's only about four months of the year. We're basically in season November and December, March and June. And so the rest of the year, I do other sorts of freelancing with various orchestras, and yeah, like a little bit of jazz, but not really much. That's kind of a totally different scene. Like I like studying it, I like playing it, but mm-hmm. I'm not super in that uh, that scene. So and most of the calls I get are for orchestral style percussion gigs. When you get a call to maybe sub in an orchestra or something, you know, I'm I mean I was and sort of I guess could still be called a trumpet player. And so mm-hmm. I know like were I to be a professional musician and I got a call to say, hey you can you come, this is what we're playing, if they said certain pieces I'd be like, Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So what are some of your favorites to play? Either ballet or orchestral or, or whatever, just like as a percussionist to to get to play. Ooh. Well anything new is typically fun because a lot of the new composers are writing, you know, not just challenging parts, but uh like they're writing for a lot of a lot of percussion. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done, I mean, like Tchaikovsky, you know, we do a lot of Tchaikovsky in the ballet and a lot of those parts are are really fun. The cymbal part in Swan Lake is awesome. (laughs) All of the percussion in Nutcracker is is a blast. It's such a well-written piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've done a couple of new pieces by uh, an English composer, Joby Talbot, and he writes really fun percussion stuff. It's challenging, but it's great. And, uh, we're doing a ballet in uh, later second half of November, which is, um, Scheherazade and Shostakovich Symphony 11 are the two main pieces in it and those are huge snare drum parts so I'm, wow. I've been brushing up on those for many months now I mean Shostakovich, Shostakovich 11 is maybe one of my favorite pieces Yeah. so um, so the fact that we get to do it for like a whole week straight is uh, pretty incredible I mean it's, wow. it's very yeah so I you know I like Shostakovich mm. uh, R- Ravel is fun to play mm-hmm. um, the standards I think yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't really do I'm not a timpanist. I kind of put a lot of people do percussion and timpani mm-hmm. and it's kind of like side by side. And I studied a bit of timpani uh in school, but I never gravitated to it the war the way that other people do. Mm-hmm. But I, I put a lot of that focus more into drum set. Because drum set with orchestra is, is uh it has its own set of challenges and not everyone has really like spent too much time doing that. Mm-hmm. So I've sort of found more of a niche um you know, being a percussionist and a drum set player as opposed to a timpanist. Well, thanks for being here. It was a real pleasure to speak with you and get to nerd out a little extra about some stuff that was really fun and thanks to you for having me thanks for listening to episode 89 of level with emily reese You can learn more about Chris Madigan at chrismadigan.com and on patreon.com slash level, where you'll find a playlist from the episode as well. 
I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com. Made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and composer Brad Gentle. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Incorporated.